you can't run from fire. Fire can happen anywhere you live. It doesn't matter. So you may as well live where you love. And Valley Center has been our home since I was three years old. There was a fire in Escondido, and that's where Stephen Luke joins us live. Stephen? Susan, the southwestern part of this fire, it's the Valley View, uh, Valley Center fire, which is also being called the Paradise Fire. There are reports from New Orleans. Uh, those people are simply going to have to rescue themselves. It is endless damage here in Joplin. Hurricane Harvey on its path to destruction in Texas. Maria is hitting the strongest storm this island has faced in nearly a century. Death toll jumping in California's most destructive fire ever. Natural disasters have shaken up Americans' lives for years. And with climate change, future disasters are predicted to be more frequent. They're affecting people who've never experienced them before. News 21 reporters spent the summer traveling across the country, hearing from some of these people. We talked to survivors of disasters, new and old, first responders, experts, and the decision makers in charge of keeping us safe. We're going beyond breaking news, revisiting some of the worst storms this country has ever seen. We'll take you through each stage of a disaster, from the years-long recovery to preparing for the next one. I'm Anna Huntsman. And I'm Jake Steinberg. This is State of Emergency. In this episode, we're taking you into the storm. First-hand accounts from survivors of hurricanes, floods, and wildfires. We start in a small town near Escondido, California, in San Diego County, where the Paradise Fire struck in 2003. Our family was having a Halloween party the night before, and we saw a glow in the sky, and living in a rural community, anything that glows is not normal. I'm sitting with Allison Roach Watson at Valley Center Fire Station Number 2, just on the road from the house she grew up in. She's telling me about the night before the fire. She was 20 at the time. As soon as we would get a call, hey, there's a fire in the area, our family would prepare. So we would load bags, we would uh, turn our cars in the direction so that we, all we had to do was drive straight, and we would uh, go to bed in our clothes, put our shoes at the foot of the bed. You know, it was a whole plan. She says family members took turns standing watch. By morning, the fire seemed to have disappeared. Then there was a call at the gate at 8.01. It was a sheriff warning them that the fire had changed directions. Allison and her family were out by 8.11. At that point, the fire was completely burning our front porch. It was actually burning the property line behind us, and we were surrounded. So in nine minutes, it went five miles and burned our entire property line, and we were trapped. The roaches were running out of time. They abandoned their evacuation plan and got into separate cars instead. Allison's parents, Lori and John, drove out in one car. Her sister Ashley and her brother Jason went in another. And Allison went with a family friend. He went down our driveway backwards and wasn't familiar with our road, so he turned the wrong direction and crashed at like a 45-degree angle on our embankment on the driveway. That embankment was completely engulfed when we crashed down that hill. So we couldn't get the car out. We had to climb out of the car and then climb back up the hill through the fire in order to get to safety. We're at the driveway where the crash occurred. So we crashed right here, and then when I got up, I got up to right to this point, and then I stood right here and held my hands out like this, and right as I did, my brother came right here and stopped and got me into his car. And then he gunned it towards the gate in that direction. But the roads were packed and the smoke made it nearly impossible to see. Their car collided with another vehicle. They slid off the road and crashed into a burning tree. At that point, we were forced to evacuate from his car. So he got out first and then I climbed over the center console and reopened the driver's side door and followed him out and then tried to turn and coax my sister out of the car. Ashley was in the back seat staring straight ahead with a blank expression. She was in shock. She told her sister she was stuck. 
Allison decided to go to the fire station to get help. In the thick smoke, she bumped into a sheriff. I tried to tell him that my sister was still in the car, but he was looking at me, and apparently I looked a lot like melted candle wax. So his initial thought was, we need to get her into an ambulance right now. We'll get back to Allison's story in just a moment. You can have a plan to evacuate or shelter in place during a disaster, but once you're in it, so many things can go wrong. News 21 reporter Natalie Wattis takes us to the Virgin Islands, where hurricanes Irma and Maria affected some of the area's most vulnerable people. This was a storm to get everybody's attention. I was up in the loft, and uh, the hurricane, you know, and I could put my hands up on the roof, and I could feel it pulsating. That's Jim Kerr. He actually won a silver medal in the 1964 Olympics for the modern pentathlon team. Now he lives alone on the mountainside of St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. An old motorcycle is the only thing marking the path to his home, which sits at the bottom of more than 100 crude rock steps guided only with rope. On the way down, you pass the house he lost almost 30 years ago during Hurricane Hugo. Uh, Hurricane Hip. And I was on a ladder in our bedroom, ladder going up to the overhead openings under the roof, you know, and they were allowing some water to come in. So I'd set up a ladder in the bedroom and came up to it to see how this board that we put across between the beams was working. As I got up to it, I looked down and I could see that the house was lifting. I could see the light coming underneath the corner. I tried to open the door. I couldn't open the door. I looked up and there was no roof. Jim is 78. He's been through a few hurricanes over the years, but getting out of Maria proved to be more challenging than he ever could have anticipated. He came down and tried to get the door open. There was stuff, you know, wood and all of those sorts of things. I uh, got some clippers and stuff and tried to go up, but it was such a huge thing. uh, It took me all day to get about 20 feet. The monumental task of clearing his mountain staircase was only made harder when people started coming through to clear the debris. There was a, a crew of bright-minded folks who were coming around and, and cutting, cutting trees where they were across roads or what have you. These people came down with very good intentions and cut away all of the things, or many of them, that I used to get myself up before. And I knew it would be a long time before I had those handholds, and I got lost. The handholds are crucial for Jim because he's been blind for several years. And not only had he lost his way, He lost his only means of calling for help. I lost the cell phone as I was going up. I didn't really know where I was. I'd have to rest, you know, and and cut away things and so forth and lay down on rocks while I'd recover a little bit and uh, work my way up a little bit farther. Jim quickly realized, too, that the situation was dangerous when he found himself suddenly close to the edge of a cliff. If you could tell from the cane that there was nothing underneath it, I kept going down, down, until finally the cane was on the side of the shoe, and I knew that where I was, there's a 35-foot block, and that was the invitation. And I recognized it in time, and I opened my eyes to things that I cannot do alone. Jim admits he got lucky. I have a whole new respect for hurricanes. I'm not an independent person any longer. I need to work with people who know how to help. Sometimes you have to just admit that you need help. That was Natalie Wattis. Of the many obstacles that can occur when you're in the storm, there's one obstacle looming over every disaster, climate change. 
scientists say disasters are getting more severe. Communities in the heart of the country experienced flooding like never before this year. Here's News 21 reporter Jordan Laird. That's the Arkansas River rushing past us. That day, the Toadsuck Lock and Dam Bridge was closed to the public. Two National Guardsmen blocked the Faulkner County side of the bridge. On the other side, in Perry County, the bridge dead ends into floodwater. We cross the bridge on foot. The water has receded enough at this point to reveal the Toadsuck One Stop. I'm Jason Trantina. I'm the owner-operator of Toadsuck One Stop behind me, and uh, I've been here since 1997 and uh, owned it since 2006. I'm Christy Trantina, and I'm Jason's wife, and we've been married for 18 years, and um, I am here because we are a team. They're clearing away the dirt and concrete barriers they put around the store. The small gas station and general store is normally a hub for the community of Toadsuck, population 288. This is our business together. This is our family business. Our children help out here. We just do everything together here. We make all the decisions together. So I'm just here to support him and bring him supplies. That's a pump trying desperately to suck water out of the store. It's never flooded before. So back in 2015 and 2016, there were two floods, but a much smaller scale. So we started hearing the rumblings about this flood coming, and we thought, okay, well, we, maybe we should take some more precautions. And um, so we did. Jason talked with you about the barrier that we built around the store, but it just wasn't enough. The water that came was so much more than we could prepare for or ever expected. Still water has gotten into the parking lot before, so the Trantina's plans were to hold back still water. But this flood was different. Rushing river current water washed away some of the barriers and got inside. On the day that we had to surrender, he called me and asked me to bring a generator out. And I just happened to be out here at the moment that we had to just give up the fight. And, you know, we just had to walk away. We had to just let go. It was just a punch in the gut. It's, we were sick at our stomachs. You know, we had tears. It was so hard to walk away and just let go of that. But we do have our faith. We do know that God is in control. We do, we took it, we let go, let it out of our hands and placed it in God's hands. And, you know, that's what's going to carry us through this. And if you look at the flooding patterns for the past five years, I mean, every, every March, April, the floods start. And it's like record-breaking, it's huge floods, people displaced. I mean, how many years do we need to have of this happening, you know, these disasters, to kind of start, hey, something's different here. They didn't used to happen every year like this, you know? That's Dr. Astrid Caldas, a senior scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She says climate change is causing record precipitation in the Midwest, which is causing record flooding along the Mississippi, Missouri, and Arkansas rivers year after year. People are not off the hook because it's flooded this year. It's not like it's going to happen only in 100 years. It may happen next week. You just go from survive mode to remodeling mode and tear everything out and start all over and hope that this doesn't come again very soon. That was Jordan Laird. Now we return to Allison Watson. 
We last heard that she was getting in an ambulance, and her sister was still in a burning car. Allison was transported to the hospital with second and third degree burns, covering 85% of her body. She was in a coma for almost a month. The roaches lost their home in the fire. When Allison woke up in the hospital, she discovered a far greater loss. I started asking for my sister because I saw my mom, saw my dad, saw my brother, but she wasn't anywhere. And I kept thinking, well, maybe she's in the room next door, maybe she's burned bad too, but nobody was telling me anything. Allison couldn't talk because her vocal cords were so badly burned. People would point to letters on an alphabet board, and she would blink when they got to the right letter. Allison spelled out, where's Ashley, to her mom. When she realized what I was asking, she just sort of paused for a second and then walked out of the room, and I knew something was really wrong. She came back probably 10 minutes later with my brother, with a pastor, and she told me that Ashley didn't make it out of the car. I'm sorry. That was by far the hardest moment of my life. I wanted to scream. I wanted to yell. I wanted to fight. And all I could do was just sit there and listen. 16-year-old Ashley Roach was one of two victims in the Paradise Fire. But just like in any fire, losses were widespread. Firestorms across San Diego County killed 15 people that year. Homes went up in flames. Memories were incinerated. We were just unbelievably grief-stricken because of our daughter. And then, you know, Allison's hospitalized. We have no idea day-to-day how she's going to be. That's Allison's mom, Lori Roach. You hear people talking about, oh, I lost my, you know, expensive car. I lost my Range Rover. It's like, I don't care if you lost your car. You know, our daughter's clinging to life. You know, we just went through a funeral. With the help of their family, friends, and community, the Roaches began to recover. They rebuilt their home. Allison underwent more than 30 surgeries. Around them, life went on. I don't go with the, I'm sure this all happened for a reason, but you get two choices. You either quit and ball up and feel sorry for yourself and turn into a mess, or you pull up your straps, you stick with your family, and move forward. The Roaches have dedicated themselves to helping with fire prevention efforts and awareness nationwide. Allison does speaking events at colleges and meets with burn survivors. You know, it's funny to say it this way, but after the fires, I was kind of dubbed the face of the fires. And I know that sounds graphic, but it has to do with my burn injuries. So the best way I was able to reach out to people was to actually just be there and let them see me and see the scars and realize, hey, this person really has been through it. Maybe we should listen. The family says they don't understand why people across the country were so interested in their story after the fires, why so many people donated to help with medical costs, why they've been asked to do so many media interviews. But they continue to talk about their experience and their daughter with the hope that it'll save even just one life. They preach the message of grab and go, evacuate early, be prepared, and don't worry about losing your stuff. They know all too well that life is most important. Yeah, right. I'm a little out of shape on this. Yeah. Or is this that's a bad finger joke right there. Out of shape. In the foyer of the Roach's house, there's this enormous grand piano. Next to it is a really large portrait. It's Ashley, dressed in a colorful Irish dance costume. She was a talented dancer and musician and had fallen in love with that piano at a store. Ashley's dance teacher helped purchase it for the family after she died. I left him at home. 
of State of Emergency was produced by me, Anna Huntsman. News 21 reporters Natalie Wattis, Jordan Laird, Jordan Elder, Carly Henry, and Ariel Salk also contributed to this episode. The news clips at the beginning are courtesy NBC7 San Diego, ABC News, The Weather Channel, Weather Matrix, and NBC News. State of Emergency is part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Knight News 21, an investigative program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona. On the next episode of State of Emergency. They're putting their lives on the line to save us. The people who run toward disaster when we run away. I kind of fell to my knee and I had uh, an emotional moment for a little bit. 